0: Welcome. To the State of Research podcast, brought to you by the Office of the Vice President for Research and KCSU, narrated and produced by me, Christian Ria, OVPR's Digital Specialist. OVPR's State of Research podcast was created to showcase our campus as one of the premier research institutions amongst American universities. Our office works to encourage and support the development, marketing, and application of CSU's intellectual property and our world-renowned researchers, students, and facilities. With this podcast, we hope to deconstruct the rationale that research is more than an analytical approach toward discovering new and enlightening answers to the complex and direct questions we ask ourselves. But it is also a journey filled with unique stories, individualized inspirations, and perseverance to solve global challenges. In our broadcast, we hope to create purposeful stories about innovation, inspiration, research, and the determination needed to propel our state of being toward the future. On this episode, I sit down with Joe Vaughn Fisher, a professor of biology, and Zach Weller, an assistant professor in statistics at Colorado State. Both Joe and Zach have been working on a project with the Environmental Defense Fund and Google Earth Outreach to pinpoint climate pollution in metropolitan cities. Their mission with this project is to establish faster and cheaper ways to find and assess methane leaks under city streets. Their approach has been tested in a dozen cities across the U.S., and today on the show they will be talking about how their project came to fruition and how they created their innovative method in quantifying methane leaks in urban areas. Along with their research, we will dive into a personal conversation about both researchers' explorative attitudes and how they've evolved into prevalent game changers in measuring natural gas leaks across the country. I would like to welcome Joe Von Fischer and Zach Weller to the show today. Welcome, guys.
1: Hey, how's it going, Christian?
0: How's it going? Hi, Zach. Thanks for having us, Christian. Yeah. So to begin today's show, we would just like to start over with a project overview of the methane mapping project that you guys are working on with EDF and with Google. So, Joe, could you kind of talk about the effects of methane in our environment and why this project is
1: important? Sure. So methane is probably many people know is a really potent greenhouse gas. These gases are present in the atmosphere at ever rising concentrations. And what they do is they prevent the earth from losing heat. Um, and so they trap some of that heat in the atmosphere. They warm the atmosphere. And a warmer atmosphere can hold more water, can lead to more violent storms, can lead to hotter temperatures. So that leads to this phenomenon of climate change. There's a lot of sources of methane to the atmosphere. Natural gas is a big one. Um, animal, you know, agriculture is another one. And as a result of human activity, there's more methane and therefore a climate that's overall warming and changing. So we're really concerned about where this methane is coming from and what we can do about it to uh, limit its emission rate into the atmosphere.
0: So where did the concept for this methane mapping project that you're working on kind of come from? Like, where did it stem from? And what does the process really look like?
1: It started off with, uh, in about 2011, I bought a new scientific instrument for my lab research, which was studying methane emissions from places like the Arctic tundra. And with this device, which is kind of portable in the sense that, like, um, a file cabinet is portable. Mm-hmm. You know, you can actually <laughs> pick it up and move it around. It's, it was a device that allowed us to make the first real-time observations of methane concentrations. We dragged this thing around the tundra and we measured methane emissions off the tundra at an unprecedented density and, and rate. So we just learned a lot about the variability in space and time about methane emissions from the Arctic tundra. Well, it got to be winter in the Arctic, so like late, late August, and we brought it back to Fort Collins and we're like, what are we going to do with this thing? So um, a student in my lab, Betsy Morton, and took it upon herself to drive this methane analyzer around Fort Collins, and we made maps of methane concentration in Fort Collins, which was really cool. We kept finding elevated readings of methane in this one part of town, and there was one business that was associated with persistently elevated readings. And so we went and knocked on their door and said, "Hey, you guys know you have a lot of methane in the air out here?" <laughs> and uh, methane, contrary to popular belief, is odorless. They add odor to natural gas to make it smell. And this company had no idea. So we helped show them where the leak was coming from, and they. They sealed it off. They just had to tighten down some flanges and they were no longer emitting methane. So that was the first time that I had ever been part of actually doing something about climate change, and I told the story to a visiting scientist from Environmental Defense Fund, Steve Hamburg, and he said, we need to talk. And so it turned out that separately, uh, Environmental Defense Fund, EDF, and Google were starting off this project where they too were putting methane analyzers on vehicles, and they wanted to drive them around, but they didn't know how to interpret the data that was coming off there or to sort of manage the project, and so that became a project that um, my team led here at Colorado State University, and Zach joined that team um, partway along the process and has really contributed a lot to what we do to extract information from when you drive a methane analyzer around a city and, um, and measure the methane concentrations as you go. Okay, um, and what sort of
0: goals have you guys accomplished in um, continuing with this project?
2: Yeah, I can, I can try to tackle that question. So there's been a, a number of different goals. Um, you know, part of it is advancing the science of the use of these mobile leak detectors. So understanding what information you can get from this kind of data, um, and then not only extracting that information, but taking that to the next step and really implementing it to try to, um, you know, mitigate some of these natural gas leaks and manage these natural gas distribution systems that are with uh, present within cities, and so that's you know that's taken a, a, a team of people where we've we've talked with local distribution companies, utility companies um, about this new technology, trying to get them to uh, use it to manage their systems, um, and really ultimately right to to try to mitigate the amount of methane that uh, is going um, into the atmosphere. So. Yeah, a number of different factors there. And and as I mentioned, it's been great seeing the the diverse set of people that it's taken to to try to do this sort of thing. So uh, scientists, policymakers, utility operators um, have all been involved. I'll add
1: that that I think what's fascinating about this is, is it's not like utilities were unable to detect natural gas leaks before, but what's novel about the technology and what got me really amped up about taking it to the tundra and driving around Fort Collins is these instruments are so much more sensitive to methane technology, methane concentrations than, than were the previous generation. They're on the order of 100 to 500 times more sensitive. They can detect very subtle changes in the concentration, which allows you to see smaller natural gas leaks or see them from a greater distance. And we're finding that when you deploy these higher sensitivity analyzers, there's a lot more leaks out there than the utilities previously were aware of. And so we're trying to work really collaboratively. We're trying not to say, you utilities, you don't know what you're doing. That's really not our approach. And so what we've been successful at is partnering with these utilities, helping them understand the advantages, helping them understand not just how you would deploy it, but also how you would use the information that comes from it to make decisions about management in your pipeline system.
0: Yeah, of course. Um, what sort of limitations in this whole process have you guys kind of um, worked through and maybe are currently still dealing with?
2: Yeah, so I, I think there's a few you know success stories that that we can uh, point to. Um, in particular, we we had a collaboration with the utility in I believe it was in New Jersey, where they used the technology to help prioritize repairs on um, some of their their pipeline. So taking the information from these sensors in terms of where the leaks are located and how big those leaks might be, to, you know, help target the leakiest areas of their system.
1: And that I, was like a. I that was like how much, it was like a billion dollars they were spending on pipeline replacement. And the, with a wow. billion dollars, they still couldn't get them all the oh, bad pipeline replaced. Yeah, And so they came to us and uh, we worked with the Environmental Defense Fund and Colorado State and Google our, as our, our team uh, mapped all these areas that they were thinking about working, found the biggest leakiest parts, and then they went, they went to town on those parts. And it was great. I mean, that was a lot of money that was being spent. And so we were right in the middle of deciding where that action would be happening.
0: Um, How has this project also helped create more of a sustainable utility system for these urban cities that you've worked with?
1: I, I think what's happening is that the utilities are realizing that technology is changing. They've been using really... Um, the same technology for managing their systems for twenty or thirty years, mm-hmm. and now there's something new coming on, and they're realizing, like many sectors, that uh, technology and information technology are transforming opportunities to change their way of doing business. And so, um, many utilities are very open to this idea and have contacted CSU and, and our EDF Google partnership about how they can do a better job. And so, um, it's it's really realizing that um, that safety is uh, obviously real important for natural gas leaks, but also because some natural gas leaks leak in an area where where it's not an explosion hazard, frankly, but the magnitude of, of methane emissions and losses of something that people are paying for and greenhouse gas emissions matters to utilities in an environmentally sensitive way that that I think is starting to emerge and is pretty exciting for me. So what sort of universal
0: adaptation have you guys seen across the board in all of these cities?
2: Yeah, so, you know, like- like any new technology, there are a lot of questions around how it's going to work. You know, especially in this case, we have these high sensitivity methane analyzers. Um, but, you know, being able to translate the, the survey data to something actionable um, takes time and takes science to develop. You know, these, these sensors are really expensive as well. So we've seen different levels of um, you know, adoption across the, the the utility industry, and I think we've kind of seen universally that all distribution companies are, are you know, excited about the technology and are interested in in how it might help them manage their systems. But, you know, as I mentioned, there's kind of these considerations of cost, you know, is a big one, and whether or not they can, you know, a- afford the devices, and then also the overhead for analyzing the data and turning that into something actionable. And so... You know, we've we've had really good uh, collaborations with quite a few utilities, um, and I think there are other utilities who are still waiting to to see how these larger utilities are using the, the information until we've got a, a really good grasp on how these things can be integrated into system management.
0: Mm-hmm. So it sounds like you kind of know a lot of the back end of the statistical data that you guys are getting from these methane mapping technologies, because you kind of talk more about your role in this project and how your statistics background and sort of your Career has shaped this position for you in the project.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So um, so my background is as uh, training as a statistician So I have a a PhD in statistics Um, And as I mentioned, you know a a big piece of this project is taking this survey data these the data We're getting from this new technology and saying how do we how do we extract those meaningful insights From that, and and, in using it, turning it into something actionable, and and so really, that's (laughs) generally I think that's kind of what statistics is about: is using data, turning (laughs) it into something actionable, Um, and so having that that statistics background, the data analysis, um, that has really played well for me (laughs) has helped me to fit into this role of of developing these algorithms and developing some of the science that's uh, that goes into. Uh, this project and and actually we just had a paper accepted um, today today yeah
0: congratulations
2: yeah thank you Um, that details some of these results about what are the things we're seeing with uh, these new mobile sensors in terms of is it actually detecting leaks or are we just detecting other sources of methane Um, and is it able to actually locate them Um, and then is it able to uh, help us prioritize these leaks by estimating their size so that they can be prioritized for repair so yeah. and the, answer all, yes. the answer is yes, yes, <laughs> yes, all of those. Yeah. Um, what about you, Joe?
0: Can you kind of describe your your my role thoughts in this on party? Zach? I can describe uh, my part thoughts. that. So
2: on top, I,
1: I'll just um, talk Zach up a little bit. But it's been great to have Zach as a partner in this. Um, we there's a group of us, but Zach's been on the phone with you know the the pipeline managers at utilities around the country, um, and what we get from the raw data from the vehicle is a far cry from what the managers of these utilities need. And Zach's done an amazing job of not just analyzing the data, but explaining it and laying out the implications in everyday language. So not only is Zach quantitatively uh, fit for this job, but he's also really great, uh, a great communicator. And that's
0: key. And especially with the partners that you guys, these big partners that you guys are working with, you need an individual that can communicate you know, the statistical data, but also just communicate in a you know professional manner.
1: Right. And sometimes they, the people in the utilities won't know how to analyze data or won't know how to understand the results of an experiment or won't know how to compare one study or one method versus another. And, um, you know, Zach and I have worked hard to communicate that with them in everyday language that they can appreciate, mm-hmm. but not feel talked down to, you know, we're just partners in this problem of natural gas leaks in cities right alongside them.
0: So speaking about these partnerships with EDF and Google, how did this partnership kind of unfold through CSU?
1: Right. So I was telling you about that a little bit earlier in the sense about how we drove the Google Street View car, not Google, the, the this new high sensitivity methane analyzer around Fort Collins. Mm-hmm. I told that story to a, a guy named Steve Hamburg, who is the chief scientist at Environmental Defense Fund. And Steve is really the one who gets projects off the ground at EDF, um, EDF you know, considers what are the major, major environmental threats. And then they have these multi-year um, initiatives. And, and one of them recently has been on methane and EDF led about 16 or 18 different studies um, on where methane was coming from nationwide and particularly what could be done about it. One of them was this partnership between Google and EDF. And then they needed a science partner. And when I met Steve at a meeting, he said he picked us as the, the partner in that. So what, what unfolded then, was um, has been continuous funding from an environmental defense fund to pay for our research here at CSU to understand what is the information content you get when you drive a Google Street View car around? How should you instruct the driver to drive? How do you develop, make a decision about where to map versus where not to map in each city? And then how do you communicate those results with the stakeholders? And so as CSU has been the science partner in that, in evaluating the data that are coming out and explaining the results. And what's really cool is that many of my partners in Environmental Defense Fund are attorneys. Mm-hmm. So these are people who have been working I <laughs> to on natural gas law or on environmental law. And, um, and so they know a lot about the regulatory framework. And not surprisingly, the movement of natural gas through cities is highly regulated, and particularly the Public Utility Commission and the Federal Department of Transportation require very specific behaviors about checking for leaks and how you do that and when you do that. So um, our partnership involves a lot of back and forth between the technology side. Here's what we could do. Here's what we could tell you. Here's what we know or don't know. And then uh, legally, here's what we have to do. Here's the framework. Here's how we can enter into this negotiation. And so it has been really a fruitful and fascinating partnership.
0: So in this methane mapping project, um, how do you guys kind of map out where and what specific cities you're going to, you know, track these leaks and sort of um, how does that work?
1: Right. Right. Well, that is another collaborative decision that we make with our EDF and Google partners. And it happens most of the cities we've worked in, have we've mapped in because that city is about to enter into a, a renegotiation of its rate base with the Public Utility Commission. And so every Five to ten years, different cities will have to come through and renegotiate their rates, and at that time, Environmental Defense Fund sort of inserts itself into that regulatory process, which is open. And what we try to do is to get this high sensitivity methane mapping as uh, to be inserted into the reg- regular 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 analysis of the way the utility operates. So, for example, when we are mapping in Chicago, it was because they were uh, going through a major renegotiation. And so we went there and started mapping segments of the city in, so that we could have data that be ready for the meetings with the Public Utility Commission. Mm-hmm. So if we decide, for example, that we're going to map in Chicago, then we have to decide where within Chicago we're going to map because we can't map the whole city. It would take a year. Mm-hmm. So maybe Zach can tell about how we decide where in the city and how all that works.
2: Yeah, so every, every city is a little bit different and there's always gonna be nuances for each one. But typically what we try to do is um, we try to target different parts of the city to get a kind of a representative snapshot of what that city might look like. So considering different things like the age of the infrastructure across the city, you know whether that's maybe using the age of houses um, as a proxy for that. Um, and then also just trying to you know survey different um, Areas in terms of whether or not they're residential, um, sort of industrial areas, and that sort of thing. So, just trying to get a representative snapshot of the city, and we'll we'll typically choose oh anywhere from boy maybe five to even twenty as many as twenty areas to sample. And so, what we'll do is we'll we'll design these sampling polygons where we'll send the Google Street View car there. Um, And what's really cool is we can design these polygons using some software. We send those to the Google Street View car so the driver can see where to drive. Um, And what we have them do then is drive every roadway within that sampling polygon a couple of times. Um and the reason we actually do this uh, this two over this two pass sampling is that we know we don't detect every leak every time. and so one of our goals is by uh, or one of our aims by doing this sampling twice is to try to capture those leaks that we may not capture on the first time. and um, in particular, we try to verify that leaks are there. So actually in order for us to report a leak to a utility company, we have to have detected it at that location two different times. so, Driving this, driving around those polygons, and uh, really the basic idea, right, is is to say where are the hot spots of methane, so to speak. So you could imagine taking these data points; they have GPS coordinates and a methane concentration. You create a map of that data, and and again, it's the it's more complicated than this, of course, but the basic <laughs> idea is to look for those hot spots of methane and condense those down into what we call a leak indication. So it's a place where we we suspect there might be a natural gas leak. And we can then report those to the utility company.
0: Okay. Where do you see this methane mapping project going into the future? Obviously, you've talked about other cities utilizing this technology. Where do you guys see it going further on? Mm -hmm.
1: Well, the Google partnership had a a sundown. Google was interested in being part of it for a few years, but not permanently. And and they'll be backing out over time. And what is happening to the project now, the way it appears to be unfolding, is that we still have a need to continue to demonstrate the value of this technology to utilities. So there are already a couple of companies that have taken what we were starting with and have made it into their own Industry. There are a couple of companies out there, Picaro and Los Gatos Research, these two companies were the ones who manufacture these high sensitivity analyzers in the first place. And at the same time that we were driving around uh, other cities with a Google Street View car, these companies were developing their own platform, their own software. So in parallel, there exists a capacity for utilities to buy or rent these um, mobile methane mapping vehicles um, for their own. What's interesting is that it's not clear to a lot of utilities how to adopt this technology and how it fits within the existing regulatory framework. So what I see the research opportunity for our team at this point is really understanding this confluence of the the technology and what information content you get when you drive a high-sensitivity analyzer around and the legal framework that utility works within and sort of the sociology about how these pipeline managers think about these problems and how they tackle it and how they adopt new technology. It's a a fascinating sort of confluence of these three areas. It's not strictly technology or legal, but it's really on the, the interface. And so I see us in the next few years doing research and outreach and public education about the technology and about how it could be used to um, make cities safer with regard to natural gas leaks and to reduce the magnitude of greenhouse gas emissions.
0: Is there any potential to onboard another partnership that could kind of help a little bit further on?
1: Well, my neighbor drives a FedEx truck and I've really wanted to surreptitiously (laughs) strap our analyzer (laughs) on there and see what's going on. Um, I think we'd be interested in, in finding other platforms on which to, to put these things. Analyzing the data is, is a specialty that we have, but there's also uh, getting it the, the vehicles driven around whatever city is really time-consuming and costly. So um, we're interested in working with utilities, potentially, to help them um, figure out how to use other technology as
2: well just by themselves. Yeah, and one project actually that's been birthed that's kind of, well, it's been an offspring of this, I guess you might say, is um, EDF has uh, partnered with Google to do an air quality project. So they're really taking this idea of mobile sensors mm-hmm. and I would say, you know, just applying it to uh, having a different application where instead of just measuring methane, they're measuring these air pollutants that, you know, affect other aspects of people's health in terms of, you know, people who might be affected with uh, by asthma and, and these kind of things. Yeah, and, that's a great point. And they, so they've, they've really benefited from our project and, you know, we've been able to share some of our results with them. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a fascinating area, too, to consider... We know a
1: lot about air quality and contaminants in university towns because that's where the professors live, right? But if you go out to where real people live, we don't know that much about Mm -hmm. what's in the air or where things are coming from. I mean, the environmental quality is a really lumpy thing. It's a poorly mixed cookie dough batter, right? And some places you just find hot hot spots of chocolate chips and you want to know about those places. So what is exciting for me is creating these public-facing maps. it would invite listeners to, to Google search for EDF methane maps, and you'll find the, some of the fruits of our labor and showing the natural gas leaks in the cities where we've released so far. And maps like that tell people about what their environment is like. And I think that is such a huge opportunity, and it's so hard to appreciate that that there could be contaminants of a variety of types right in your neighborhood. But how would you know? And uh, so maybe the next generation of environmental sensors are really much more personal um, or riding piggyback on something, Uber cars or Google Street View cars or somebody else's vehicles.
0: So now we're going to jump into segment two, where we kind of discuss more of the personal stories of your guys's academic background and sort of the professional development that you guys have gone through to acquire these roles and these positions in these specific projects. Um, Joe, could you kind of discuss a brief overview of your academic career and like what that looked like? Sure.
1: Where to start? You know, um, I'm an associate professor. Oh, I'm a professor. I just got promoted to real professor. Oh, wow! Yeah. I, yeah. Congratulations. Thanks. No, don't know how to call my own title. <laughs> um, and uh, I am aware that in Colorado there are a lot of our students here at CSU who are first generation or come from different backgrounds, and I. And I I frankly have, was lucky to go to a great high school in Minnesota and have parents who were able to help me um, you know find a good college to go to so I went to a small liberal arts college and majored briefly in physics and even more briefly in English before finding biology as my major. And um, in that time, I had a fabulous research experience. So when I was 18 years old, I was working on this uh, research project in ecology using stable isotopes of carbon to understand the history of vegetation across the Great Plains. You know, I, I was doing what I, what some grad students don't have an opportunity to do. And so uh, I've been doing research on, on ecosystems since I was 18 years old. And uh, in that time, I've really built an appreciation for gathering data and presenting it and organizing it graphically and computationally trying to make sense of it and see what it tells you about the world i you know working with gases you have to have an imagination and um and so i think i'm i have a vivid imagination and (laughs) sometimes some of those (laughs) imaginary things that might be going on um are hypotheses really about how the world works and i have been able to cultivate those and and find that some of them are actually true, and a lot of them I'm able to disprove to myself over time. So, you know, I went to college studying ecosystems and soil, and then I went to grad school at Cornell and studied uh, greenhouse gas formation and using more stable isotopes. You know, stop me for coffee and I'll tell you all about stable isotopes. It's really interesting, <laughs> but it's just the idea that you can basically spray paint different molecules and follow their fate through the environment. And that's really a powerful tool for understanding where gases come from and where they go. And then um, I did some postdoctoral work at Princeton uh, studying ice cores and samples of the ancient atmosphere from 400,000 years ago, you know, you, you bring up these ice cores that are really deep in the Antarctic, um, ice sheet and then melt them and release the air. And you can analyze what the greenhouse gas and other gas composition was from a long time ago. So all those different studies helped me develop a really broad view of where these gases come from and where they go. And so I've always been, um, I guess if I describe myself, my scientific history, another huge influence was Mr. Spock from the old Star (laughs) Trek and his uh, tricorder, this device that you could use to observe the otherwise invisible parts of nature. And the device would report back to Mr. Spock or to whomever about what was going on in that environment, not just the data, but an interpretation. And as a scientist, I really like connecting all the way from, from otherwise hidden observations, things about gases and, and energy and the environment and bringing that through to a story about what's going on, a story that others could relate to. That's my passion, is taking the data and making it into a story that's, that matters to people. And Zach, how about
2: you? Yeah, so well, where to start? Probably at the beginning, <laughs> right, Joe? Yeah. Um, so I grew up in Minnesota also, don't you know? <laughs> so <laughs> eight here. How's it going, Oh, you betcha. Uh, so Joe and I, We make a good team that way. Um, So I grew up, uh, I actually grew up on a dairy farm in Minnesota, decided I didn't want to milk cows for the rest of my life. So decided I should probably go to school. Um, I went to a small liberal arts college in Minnesota, Concordia College. And there I studied mathematics and um, considered going to graduate school for uh, either mathematics or statistics. And um, one of my professors, uh, Dr. John Reber, he was a big influence on me. And Kind of just saying that statistics is you know highly applicable across a, a lot of different areas and 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 that's you know to this day really what I like about statistics. So decided to go to graduate school. I'm actually here at CSU, completed my PhD. Kind of as I was in grad school and doing both masters and PhD, I was doing a number of consulting projects and and just kind of collaborating with some different researchers. And, and you know as I mentioned that one of the things I really love about statistics is um, is you get to learn about Different things that are going on across campus, or apply your knowledge to a lot of different areas of science. And so, um, I really like the quote by the famous statistician John Tukey. Um, he said, "the the great thing about statistics is you get to play in everybody else's backyard." And so, it's kind of kind of selfishly, I get to you know I get to work with Joe, who you know might be considered an expert in you know isotope composition of gases, and I get to work with an animal scientist who's studying you know the bruise incidences in in cattle and things like this. So. Uh, it's fascinating to me to learn about a lot of these different research projects and get to speak to you know different experts in the field and and you just learn about like well there's all these research things that are going on that I never even considered or, or knew about and what I really enjoy then about that interaction is being able to help them analyze their data kind of like Joe was saying using the data to tell a story about what's going on and and so was fortunate enough then uh, as a graduate student to be able to join on with Joe as this part of this methane mapping project, the timing worked out surprisingly well, where you had, an, Joe had an opening for a postdoc position. Um, I took that. And then I, since then I've been able to secure a position as an assistant professor here at CSU. So i been really lucky. I really like CSU, like being out in Colorado. And so, yeah, here I am today.
0: And through this process, both your academic and your professional careers, how have you guys been able to kind of keep your curiosity alive and keep yourself motivated in the sort of realm of learning and, you know, exploring these curiosities
1: for me i don't I don't think that becoming incurious is possible i think it's one of my pre- fundamental personality traits just to wonder about everything and so i was listening to the way that you and i were both talking about um data and telling a story zach and i think probably the way i would say we both would describe it is not that we try to tell a story with the data but we we try to find out what story the data is trying to tell us and so i tell my grad student Emily sometimes that that true stories in nature will speak to us no matter how hard we try to screw it up, you know? And we have to be careful with a lot of our observations, but, but it's always there. And so, you know, the curiosity doesn't die away. But what happens sometimes is that other parts of work for any of us get to be a grind. And so I'm also the associate chair of our department. Biology is the largest undergraduate program at CSU. We have over 1,500 undergraduate majors. And We are I really work hard to make that a human system, even though there's a lot of people I care about them and I want them to have a good experience. And so a lot of what becomes a grind is just helping to helping all these people to have the best possible experience. And that just can wear a person thin. Um, And so I don't know. Yesterday I was I was pretty tired by four o'clock. I asked my wife I was very grumpy and so I uh, I just left and I went for a great mountain bike ride we're lucky to live in Fort Collins where you know we're just miles away from some world class mountain biking and so i just took a trip over by the foothills and exhausted myself and i came back sweaty and sticky and smelly but a more, <laughs> more than much, usual much, <laughs> a little more than usual <laughs> but much much more able to deal with the world now if i get exercise i i've recently was trying to start meditating which at first i thought was a way to check out of the world but i'm finding that in fact, it's a way to be sensitive to the world, but not be dragged into whatever river is flowing right next to you, you know, to create a little space between yourself and your identity and the river of, of activities and emotions that flow right next to you. And what about you, Zach?
2: Yeah, I think some of my curiosity is is really fueled by those interactions I get to have with other scientists. And, you know, again, kind of selfishly, I I try to take away from that sort of the the mindset that different researchers have. So, how do they think about tackling a problem? Um, what can I learn from them about kind of how science works and their mode of investigation, if you will? Um, and then, and then, what can I maybe you know give to them to help them with their project? And and so, it kind of becomes a two way street in, in that sense. But um, yeah, I definitely feel really lucky to have had a lot of good mentors, like Joe, for example, or my PhD advisor Jennifer Hoding, who've um, you know, just just taught me how to think about doing science and um, yeah, just being being good scientists. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so it sounds like Fort Collins and CSU has been a great place for you both to work on the research that you're working on, and also enjoy the nature that surrounds CSU and Fort Collins.
1: I think we're really lucky to be here at CSU, and if I look back on this project, um, it's really been CSU students who have played key roles in moving it forward. As I mentioned in the beginning, uh, the undergraduate student in our lab, Betsy Mortensen, was um, part of the very beginning of doing this harebrained stuff of driving this high-sensitivity methane analyzer around Fort Collins and seeing what what's going on. And then uh, this PhD student in statistics, Zach Weller, who I met when he was still what behind the ears, um, yeah. doing his statistics as a graduate student, and then Zach's and my partnership has really emerged from that. You know, I think that we're working in very much as a as a pair of equals as a team. It's been um, students like like Zach and Betsy who have allowed this work to happen, and it's exciting to, to work with students and um, to bring them into the research process and to do research that matters. Oh, Christian, and I can't let this end without doing a shout out to some of our partners here at CSU and outside. We have uh, a great data analyst in our group, Duck Yang, who is getting his master's in computer science. And then at Environmental Defense Fund, we work with amazing people. Taryn Takahashi um, really helps keep our project together. Mary Gaty, um who's an environmental consultant. Um, Jonathan Perez and Steve Hamburg, as I said, uh, these people are just great. Karen Tuxen-Bettman from Google is the person who has helped us manage all the Google cars. And uh, those things don't always run smoothly, but she, she makes it operate. So it's, it's, a, it's a cloud of, of really beautiful people who've been working together to make this happen. Well, thank you for sharing that
0: and kind of shouting out to these individuals that have helped your project along and kind of, you know, stepped into these roles to help you. And thank you guys for being on the show today and sharing your insight on the this methane mopping project and the partnerships that you guys have created through EDF and Google.
2: Thanks for
1: having us. Thanks, Christian.
0: Thank you for tuning into this week's episode. We look forward to exploring and sharing new research stories with you every other week. Check out OVPR's Facebook and Instagram at C-O-L-O State Research to hear about the latest research stories taking place at Colorado State. And keep an eye out for any announcements on these social platforms for all State of Research podcast episodes. Special thanks to KCSU for giving us this platform to tell these stories, Joe and Zach for being on the show and sharing details about their methane mapping project and their curiosity about life and the way they choose to live on this planet and all of you listeners for tuning in with us. Until next time, ciao.